It's Wednesday, June 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Delta variant of COVID-19 is getting a lot of attention lately, as it is likely to become the dominant strain in the U.S. in the near future. This variant is more transmissible, can infect a large portion of those who have only had one dose of the vaccine, and can also cause more severe disease. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for why health officials are using this variant of concern to push more people to become vaccinated. Next, younger millennials and Gen Z are ditching traditional investments and pouring money into cryptocurrency and the technology that surrounds it. A big part of the shift is because many don't trust traditional investment institutions, wanting to have fun with meme stocks, and also feeling like they're part of a community as they share research and tips. Taylor Locke, money reporter at CNBC, joins us for why younger investors are banking on crypto despite the volatility. Finally, some find it creepy, others find it comforting, but people are finding loved ones who have passed on Google Maps. Using a time travel feature on the site is allowing people to look at Street View going back to 2007, and in some cases, they're finding relatives forever memorialized on Google. There are questions, however, on how data associated with deceased people should be handled. Rebecca Heilweil, reporter at Recode by Vox, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The Delta variant is currently the greatest threat in the U.S. to our attempt to eliminate COVID-19. Good news, our vaccines are effective against the Delta variant. Joining us now is Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about the Delta coronavirus variant. Uh, right now, it's getting a lot of attention. We're seeing a lot of good news with vaccinations and cases going down, but this variant is still one of concern. Federal officials say that it could become the dominant strain in the United States you know, soon, in a few months or, or whatnot. Really, we don't know what will happen with it. Uh, there, You mentioned in your article how the alpha strain was one of concern, and it did become the dominant strain in the United States, but it didn't lead to an overall huge surge. So we're obviously hoping that doesn't happen with this Delta version. But Sarah, tell us a little bit more about it. Why is this one so concerning? So the reason Delta is so concerning is that it's a lot more transmissible. So Delta is more transmissible than Alpha, and Alpha in turn was more transmissible than the original virus that came out of China last year. So we're looking at Delta to be about a little over twice as transmissible as the original virus. And what we're seeing in the UK right now, where Delta has already become dominant, is that there's kind of a, a spike in cases right now. The spike is actually largely driven among young people. And so actually, this is important because the UK and the US have pretty similar vaccination rates when you just look at the raw numbers right now. So what's different is the pattern of vaccination. In the UK, young people, people in their 20s, haven't been able to be fully vaccinated yet. And so you can see that with this variant is really posing as a threat for for people who are young and who are unvaccinated, right? So I think the real kind of really big message here is with Delta is that it is more dangerous now to be unvaccinated than it was perhaps a year ago. And if you're unvaccinated, we are seeing that the vaccine does still offer really good protection against Delta. There's, there's, some, there's some changes we can talk about, especially if you only get one dose. But I think at the end of the day, Delta kind of poses you know, a danger to people who are unvaccinated. If you're vaccinated, personally, you don't have that much to worry about, but we can, we'll see what that looks like. This Delta variant can sicken a large portion of the people who've only had that one vaccine. Tell us about that. 
So we have some data out of the UK that suggests that uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine and with the Pfizer vaccine, so there's the vaccines being used in the UK, that one dose only offers about 33% protection against getting sick. But with two doses, the Pfizer vaccine is at 88%, so still really good, still pretty close to where we were originally. I think one way to think about this is that it's just really important for people to get that second dose. I think it's also just in terms of understanding how vaccines work and how protection works. Um, It's not necessarily all or nothing, right? Like just because the vaccine isn't able to prevent you from getting sick doesn't mean it's not protecting you from getting less sick than you would have if you had not get the vaccine. So every dose of vaccine is going to protect you a little bit more. And we're seeing that with two doses, the protection still looks really good. And with the Delta variant, you know, one of those other concerning things is that it it may cause more severe disease of COVID-19. We'll see how that bears out once we get more data as, as well. But one of the things that I did want to talk about that you mentioned in your article is that what you write is expect the unexpected. And we don't really know what's going to happen. As I mentioned, with that alpha uh, variant, we thought it could create a big surge. Thankfully, it didn't. Except in Michigan, it did kind of do something interesting. And that's why part of this is, is just how lucky we get. Tell us about Michigan and what happened with the alpha variant and how they had a spike. Yeah, how lucky or how unlucky they got. So it's, you know, it's not always clear, even in retrospect, exactly what happened. But I talked to some folks in Michigan. And what happened is that in earlier this year, in the spring, in March and April, Michigan saw a pretty big spike, even though most of the rest of the country did not. Most of the rest of the country just saw cases, you know, continue to go down as they vaccinated more and more people. So it seems like what happened in Michigan is that the virus, uh, the alpha variant, arrived relatively early and it got into a population of people who were unvaccinated. So people who were still too young to be eligible for vaccination earlier this year, back in the winter when we were kind of going down by age. And especially there were were a lot of reports of uh, COVID spreading among youth youth sports, teenagers playing sports in school. And so that, you know, kind of comes up against just uh, almost luck or, or, or misfortune. I write about how there are a couple different ways of thinking about why even small changes in timing and luck can have a really big effect with this virus. And it's also kind of what makes it unpredictable. So the first thing is that viruses spread exponentially, which means that if you wait even a little bit to respond to the virus, you might have a really dramatically different outcome, even though there's still like a little bit of time. So that might be why like Michigan got the variant a little bit earlier. That made a difference. The other is that the virus is very what biologists call over-dispersed, which means most people who get the virus do not pass it on to anyone at all. But a very small minority becomes super spreaders. So that means that if you happen to have an early super spreading event in a uh, vulnerable population where most people are unvaccinated, that just might be enough to kind of trigger you into a spike that might happen in one place, but another place not, even though the other conditions might seem the same. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. They connect with each other and they enjoy the community aspect of like joking around about a meme or connecting on a meme that they grew up with. And really, I think that this is going to be a trend that we continue to see even past the pandemic, that younger people really gravitate towards things online and things that they connect with. Joining us now is Taylor Locke, money reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Taylor. Thanks, Oscar. I wanted to talk about how Gen Z and even younger millennials are faring with their investments right now in the market. Obviously, we've been hearing a lot about cryptocurrency, and they're very much into it right now. A lot of them think it's the future of finance. 
But, you know, we've been hearing forever how volatile the cryptocurrency market is. You can look to Bitcoin. I think right now it's been cut in half from its all-time high of more than $64,000. And when anything moves with Bitcoin, you know, all the other ones kind of follow suit. Ether is down. Dogecoin is down. But still, Gen Z and these younger investors are still, you know, holding the line with this. They're very much into it. And there's a variety of reasons. So, Taylor, help us walk through some of this because you spoke to a lot of people on why they're so set on this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're very aware of obviously its volatility and how risky the investment is. But there's, as you said, a few guiding lights for them on why they continue to hold and pour more money into this market. One being uh, distrust with traditional institutions. I found that many of these younger investors have turned to cryptocurrency as a way to kind of avoid traditional systems. They don't quite trust financial advisors. They're worried about their retirement and inflation, and they want to differentiate their systems from what their parents did. So that's one big one that I heard. But overall, there's also just a big belief in the technology behind cryptocurrency, specifically with each blockchain. For example, a few of the sources have said that they're just very positive about Bitcoin and the Ethereum blockchain in their capabilities. And they believe that the technology will really be big going forward. So they want to be a part of it, even if it's volatile, even if they lose money buying in, they believe that long term, that it's something really important. And then lastly, I really noticed there was great focus on community and a focus on a love of memes. As silly as that sounds, they really love this. I mean, they connect with each other and they enjoy the community aspect of like joking around about a meme or connecting on a meme that they grew up with. And really, I think that this is going to be a trend that we continue to see even past the pandemic, that younger people really gravitate toward things online and things that they connect with. So that's why you kind of see Dogecoin just, even though it's quite down now with the sell-off that you referenced earlier, but I believe that we're going to continue to see a similar theme with with memes and and just being a part of something is a greater whole. And you mentioned the distrust of traditional financial institutions. You know, a lot of them are doing their own research. Who knows if it's if it works or not. But, you know, they're turning to places like Reddit, TikTok, even and these other places. And this is where it feeds into that community part. Also, they're giving each other tips there. They're very reliant on social media and don't sleep on these these kids. They're very bright. I mean, if you look on Reddit or you look on TikTok, they're really doing their research. Uh, I think that a lot of the time we've seen in, in the mainstream media and understandably so that, you know, that perhaps that they're not as educated on this and that they're, you know, just taking the word of random people on social media. But they really a lot of them are doing their research and a lot of them really feel that this is something that is going to continue to grow. But definitely, there's definitely a community on there, as you said, and they're definitely very interested in, you know, collaborating on Reddit and on TikTok, especially even on Twitter. Financial Twitter has definitely been growing tremendously, even if it's a lot of memes and joking around. Um, There's definitely a heavy community there for sure. Yeah. And going continuing on that trend, even with the meme stocks, when you're talking about things like AMC or GameStop, those were full-on community-built buys. I mean, everybody was saying, let's get in on it together. Let's disrupt the short-selling market for this. Let's keep doing this. And, you know, everybody's saying, hold the line, go to the moon. That uh, (laughs) really, in a lot of the people that you spoke to, that was one of the main drivers for them. Just being part of something really made them want to keep investing despite all the volatility. 
you know, I think a few few of the sources were saying that they didn't even care if they lost money and that they were investing in at the top. <laughs> they just wanted to be a part of it. I uh, just wanted to be able to, you know, print out a screenshot. I think one of the sources said just to prove that she was involved. They definitely found this to be a huge event uh, that they all wanted to be a part of just for the sake of rooting for the, quote, little guy in this situation. Of course, there were institutional investors involved in this. I mean, I don't think that only retail investors could have done what, you know, has happened with GameStop and AMC. But it's definitely a lot of these uh, younger retail investors who wanted to be involved in something that they feel is beyond them. They felt that this was kind of rooting against hedge funds and sticking up for the little guy who doesn't have access in the same way as other people do. So that was important to them. And they found that to be really exciting. There's a low barrier to entry on this stuff, but for people that are unbanked, they're facing a lot of other financial hardships. Even for them, it's hard to get into this. So, you know, are they feeding into this system where some of these people on the lower end can't get in? Just curious if if any of them mentioned something like that. They believe that over time that things will just get more advanced and helping. They believe that basically that Bitcoin, for example, will definitely be helpful going forward for those who are unbanked and those who don't have as much access, even though it's definitely you know tricky to begin with. But they believe that the technology will be innovated on to be even better in the future. So they're just very, very bullish, even you know raising concerns um, that you mentioned. They just believe that ultimately that this will be helpful, um, whether it's Bitcoin or an iteration of Bitcoin, that's even better. They believe that this is something that will definitely take over. And, and even even with the concerns, they yeah. still are very, very firm on their outlook. Yeah. And it very well could, you know, if enough people, right. enough young investors keep it going, keep that momentum going, it could be that future of finance. So it's just all interesting to see how it goes. You know, I, I keep going back to that volatility thing because that's sure, pretty discouraging, sure. it seems like, a lot of times, but everybody's still holding strong. So we'll keep looking out for all of this. Taylor Locke, money reporter at CNBC, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And every so often, someone will discover that the image that Google took at that time incidentally captured a loved one. And so what I wrote about is basically this trend of people stumbling across these unexpected memories that Google has stored in their map service. Joining us now is Rebecca Heilweil, reporter at Recode by Vox. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting thing that's been popping up on the internet recently. It's It's been happening for some time, but a few stories uh, just recently started pushing it up again. And people find it comforting sometimes. People find it creepy sometimes. But some people are going through Google Maps and they're going on Google Street View and they're finding old pictures of loved ones maybe that have passed. And, you know, they're sharing their stories online and other people are chiming in saying, oh, this happened to me, too. It's kind of a a fun and interesting thing. So, Rebecca, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing out there. So there's been this cycle really ever since Google Street View started where people kind of using the feature and going back to places that are meaningful to them, like where they grew up or their parents' home, and using the Street View tool to revisit these places. And every so often, someone will discover that the image that Google took at that time incidentally captured a loved one. And so what I wrote about is basically this trend of people stumbling across these unexpected memories that Google has stored in their map service. Yeah, there's it's uh, called uh, the time travel feature. And when you go on Street View or on Google Maps, you know, next to uh, the date or, or it has like a little 
looks like a little clock, like a rewind clock type of thing. You can click it and you can see all the previous dates that it has stored in there. And uh, I, I went through it before we did this interview just to see what my old family home had in there. Nothing of a past loved one, but I did notice my uncle getting ready to put up some Christmas lights, uh, which was kind of funny. But yeah, that's what people are going through right now. Uh, tell us some uh, one of the stories that sparked this more recently. So I spoke to one person, a writer based in the UK, who also stumbled upon this feature incidentally, and she was going to Street View's version of her late mother's house. And she found that when, I guess, the Google car had gone and taken those images, the light had been on in this house. And she found it very emotionally impactful because if the light was on in this house, it was a very sure sign that when this car went by several years ago, her mom was home. And she posted about this on Twitter. It went viral. I think hundreds of thousands of likes on Twitter now. If you go to her thread, you'll see a bunch of other people trying to do the same thing. They're not always successful. Google didn't always pick up an image of their loved ones. But you see some really interesting moments that Street View has picked up and people find it very emotional. There's also this conversation going around on how much Google has power over, you know, this data of deceased people. You know, in some cases, people want pictures taken down. They don't always want those things left up there. I mean, first of all, the people who have passed away obviously cannot express their own opinion about whether or not they want this data to remain up. But even among the people who stumble across these images, some people might find it very heartwarming to see them, but you could totally imagine someone really not liking that this uh, this type of image remains up or finding it disturbing. But I think, you know, more broadly, it highlights that the organization or company that's setting the terms for how we should deal with these images after someone passes away is Google. We didn't really have a say in that in that process. Yeah, and what the mechanism is for going back and trying to remedy some of that stuff, right? If, you know, you're, uh, uh, you know, somebody's son or daughter or whatever, and you want to get rid of grandma or grandpa's picture on there, I mean, you're going to have to probably go through a bunch of steps to prove that you're that person, I'm assuming. And then online, they blur out the face. So it, it seems like it might be a complicated thing to go through. I think it's something that we're going to start hearing more and more and more about, especially as people who have lived through most of their lives through the internet age do end up passing away. There are going to be more and more questions about dealing with data associated with people who have died. It's something that I think we're just starting to have to wrestle with. But, you know, these are norms that haven't really been debated and set yet. And I think it's going to raise a lot of really important questions. I like the way you leave off your article because it's a big question. You know, it's this big reminder how big a, a, a part Google plays in our lives right now, documenting our lives over time. We have this record of so many parts of the world right now going back to 2007 and you can catch anything. Sometimes they're funny people falling or tripping on the street, but sometimes as we were talking about, you can see a loved one there in the past. There are lots of heartwarming things that these Google cars probably capture, but we shouldn't assume that that's the only thing these cameras capture. And this is, for some people, a very emotionally gratifying experience to see. But you could imagine some really not great things that this stuff captures as well. And like you know, we we're discussing, it really sort of raises the specter of how much control Google has here. Rebecca Heilweil, reporter at Recode by Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.